0: For your support. It's time for another edition of Fighting for the Faith. Friday, May 1st. That's right, May Day, 2015. see here, making some last-second programming decisions, literally last-second. For tuning in, you're listening to Fighting for the Faith. My name is Chris Rosebro. I am your servant in Jesus Christ, and this is the program that dishes up a daily dose of biblical discernment, the goal of which, help you to think biblically, help you to think critically, and help you slow down, stop, open up your Bible, and compare what people are saying in the name of God to the Word of God. Sadly, there really is no shortage of crazy And bizarre things being said out there, and we actually take the time to put God's Word back into context so that you can compare and see if what these people are saying, you know, the most popular pastors, preachers, teachers, conference speakers, self-styled prophets, prophetesses, to see if what they're saying is what God's Word really says, or if, well, they're making up their own doctrine, not paying attention to what God's Word says, ripping things out of context, scratching itching ears, and teaching for shameful gain— the things that they ought not to teach. And unfortunately, we have found that, um, well, the best way to put it is, is that the more popular they are in American evangelicalism, the more likely you're not going to hear God's Word rightly taught. And that is not a good thing. You know, Christians are, t- are taught to not listen to those who are twisting God's Word, to rebuke them, to have nothing to do with them. But unfortunately, um you know things are such right now that uh the uh the churches run amok with people who are telling people what they want to hear uh, rather than telling people what they need to hear. Now let's talk about what we're going to do on today's episode of Fighting for the Faith. And I think it's important to let you know that there is no theme today. I, I think that it's difficult to theme Fridays due to the fact that we have email and plus that we'd like to end off with good sermons. And so we're going to stick with our normal Friday routine here. We'll do a few things before the first break we'll do email after the after the first break and then coming out of the second break we're going to end the week off with three good sermons you know you know the, in the Christ-centered cross-focused law gospel sin grace repentance and the forgiveness of sins kind of things you, you, you get the idea that's what we're going to do today and so let's talk about what we're going to do in the first hour we're going to begin with a Terry Savell Foy update um, have you ever wondered how you can overcome small thinking? Yeah. Apparently this is an important thing to God, you know, that you overcome small thinking. You've got to learn how to think big. Otherwise, you know, God's not happy with you. <laughs> I think that's kind of the, the subtext for what it is that we're about to listen to. And then when we're done listening to Terry Savelle Foy, we'll uh, check in with uh, Stephen Furtick. He has jet lag. Uh, he recently came back from a trip to Australia where he was one of the headline uh, speakers at the uh, Presence Conference, and we're going to check in with his uh, jet-lagged edition of uh, narcissus, which is Narcissistic Eisegesis, as he uh, tries to explain to us what uh, a portion of Scripture from the Book of Acts is really all about. And of course, you know, the way Stephen Furtick thinks, you know, it, the Book of Acts was actually written to tell us about you and to tell us about Elevation Church, not about Jesus. No, not so much. So... Uh, <laughs> that's what we'll do. We'll take a break. When we come back from the break, we have email to end off the uh, the first hour with. And uh, second hour, we got a Jeremy Rohde sermon. We have a Pastor Brian Wolf Mueller sermon, and we have a Pastor Rosebro sermon. So, you know, of course, two of them will be good. One of them won't be. Um, <laughs> this is the best way to put it. Anyway, uh, unfortunately, you know, I'm breaking all the rules when it comes to uh, my sermons. And what I mean by that is is that, yeah, I'm exegeting a text, but see, there's this like unwritten rule in uh, in Lutheran circles that a sermon has to come in between 14 and 18 minutes long. And uh, the sermon you're going to be listening to from me weighs in at a hefty 30 minutes. Yeah. I know, I, I know I'm probably going to have to turn in my Lutheran card. I'm starting to sound like a Calvinist. It's all the... <laughs> <laughs> Although the Calvinists would say, 30 minutes, how could you actually do it in 30 minutes? It needs to be an hour long. <laughs> yeah, I just don't fit anywhere, I guess. Anyway, so that's what we're going to be doing with today's episode of Fighting for the Faith. And since we're starting with the Terry Savelle Foy update, that requires us to do this.
1: Hi, Bobby. Hi, Cam. You want to go for a ride? Sure, Cam. Jump
2: in a Bobby girl in the Bobby world. Black and plastic.
0: Sing along if you know it. Fantastic You can brush my hair,
2: undress me everywhere. Imagination, that is your
1: creation. Come on, Barbie, let's go, party i Barbie-
0: Yeah, there's our uh, Terry Savella Foy update music. I'm a Barbie girl. And you know, I've gotten over uh, <laughs> the trepidation that I originally felt uh, by playing that music here at Fighting for the Faith. And I'm just embracing it, letting my inner Barbie come out. and. <laughs> I am losing it. Anyway, so uh, the sermon, not sermon, the message we'll be listening to is How to Overcome Small Thinking. Let's see if God's really all about you doing, if this is sound biblical doctrine or something else. Here's Terry Savell for Here we go.
2: Thank you so much for watching this week. And I want to say a special thank you to those of you who write in and share your stories with me. I love reading them. You energize me when I sit there and read story after story of what God's doing in your life. Well, today... I really want to talk about something that I believe is the number one limitation to you achieving success, dreams, goals, whatever God's put in your heart.
0: Uh, So apparently, you know, God's put something in your heart and it's up to you to make it happen. Get cracking and see, you know, well, now now you got to start talking about what are the things that are blocking it? You know, so uh, is your is your dream, um, <laughs> this is a bad way of putting it, but is your dream constipated? Yeah, you, you got to unblock that. And so, uh, so what are the ways in which we can unblock our dreams if they're not really coming to pass? Because apparently we can somehow sabotage, you know, the dream that God has laid on our heart.
2: And it's small thinking.
0: Yeah, small thinking. That will do it every time, apparently.
2: How to overcome small thinking. Do you know that nothing limits you more in your life? than your thoughts what's going on right here in fact god is moved or he's limited by our thinking
0: Mm -hmm. god is moved and or limited by our thinking really um i thought god was omnipotent you know that would be like you know all-powerful um, that he was sovereign. I, you know, it's so apparently, you know, poor God. I mean, who knew? I, you know, here the Bible describes God as like capable of doing anything, you know, nothing is impossible with God. And, uh, and, you know, but see, well, except for the fact that, you know, God really, really, truly wants to do something in your life. And if you just believe big enough, he'll be moved to action Otherwise, yeah, no, he's totally limited, you know, yeah, you know, so poor God, you know, it's <laughs> what a lame God. I mean, the God who isn't all powerful, the God who can be limited, apparently, by your small thinking. Who knew?
2: You know, it's that powerful that you can actually limit God by having small thoughts. God-
0: so that actually makes you God, right? And so small thoughts are like kryptonite to God, you know, so, you know. So there's God, you know. He's feeling really good one day, and then all of a sudden, a small thought hits him. So, you know, the Holy Spirit be like, "Yeah, you know, uh, you know, I, the day started off so well, and you know, I really was feeling pretty powerful. And next thing you know, some
3: small thinking came in, and whoa, just zapped me of all of my strength. And now I'm just totally limited, you know. Uh huh. Right
2: to do so much in your life, but you have to get your thoughts in agreement with what God wants to do in your life. You know, you've probably heard that story. I've, I've told it a hundred times about those American sailors who were visiting the port in China. And they said when they got off the boat, they saw a tattoo parlor. And when they walked by the parlor, they saw all these displays in the window. Well, one of the tattoos that was displayed in the window said, born to lose. They thought, do people seriously get that tattoo? So they walked in there and they asked the Chinese man, they said, do people really get that? And the little man said in broken English, he said, before tattooed on body, tattooed on mind. What a powerful statement.
1: (laughs) So apparently um,
0: now we're uh, as a source of definitive theology the unnamed tattoo artist at uh, some seaport uh, where the U.S. Navy stops. It's somewhere out there in Southeast Asia, I'm sure. So it could be Korea, you know, it could be Japan. Who knows? So, yeah, I mean, who knew that uh, that uh, this unknown tattoo artist, uh, before tattooed on, body tattooed on, mind. Got it. Sounds like Mr. Miyagi, yeah.
2: Oh, yeah. You are limiting God or you are moving God by the thoughts that you have about yourself, about your future. You know, I was listening to a story by Andrew Womack, one of his CDs. And he was talking about how, I think he said for 20 or 30 years, he pastored small churches in Texas. Three small churches that he said never grew above 100 people.
0: And, he and that's bad because of what? Yeah, i just going kind of to ask the question. Why is it a negative thing that uh, a pastor is pastoring a church less than 100 people? I mean, it's blunt, the congregation that I serve, it's out in the sugar beet fields of Oslo, Minnesota. And, uh, you know, on a good Sunday, we got 25, 30 people showing up. And I don't consider that to be bad or a curse or a blight or something evil or or that somehow huh, my ministry is in the toilet. And, you know, maybe the reason why <laughs> the congregation I serve is so small is because of all of my small thinking. Who knew?
2: Everything was a struggle. Bill collectors were calling. Collection agencies were calling. He said everything was a financial struggle. Well, all of a sudden in 2001, he had an encounter with the Yeah,
0: it's really simple. If you have a congregation of less than a hundred people and you got bill collectors coming and you're not able to pay your bills, <laughs> step number one: stop spending so much money. I mean, what are you spending the money on? You know, <laughs> once the building's paid for, um, you know, after that you got electricity and you got maintenance on the building, and you know, but uh, you know, all you need is a pulpit, <laughs> you know place to have the Lord's Supper and maybe Sunday school and, you know, know, pews or even, you know, benches work if, you know, in a pinch or, you know, foldable chairs. I mean, what are you guys spending the money? See, that's the thing. I It has nothing to do with the smallness of the congregation. It probably has to do with the largeness of their spending habit.
2: And God said to him, you have limited me by your small thinking. Then he took him.
0: Uh-huh. So God told Andrew Womack that he had limited God by his small thinking. So we're supposed to now tack this on to the back of our Bible. But see, listen, the, what is she doing? She's exegeting what she what Andrew Womack is claiming he received as a direct revelation from God. So we better put this at the back of our Bible. So you know, if you don't have the Book of Womack. Yeah, the Book of Womack. Um, in at, at this point, I only know of maybe one or two verses that go in the Book of Womack. But you know, it's, you can tack it on right after the Book of Revelation, and uh, you know, the Book of Womack. It can be, you know, you know that uh, thus saith the Lord, you have limited me by your small thinking, you know. And you can even give a little bit of the narrative, but that's all part of the Book of Womack now, and it's a definitive biblical doctrine because God, the Holy Spirit, sp- supposedly
1: spoke it, right.
2: Psalm 78, 41, it says they turned back and limited God. they tempted God. They limited the Holy One of Israel. He said that was one of the most life-transforming moments.
0: All right, now we're going to back this up, and we're going to do some fact-checking. The uh, She's claiming that uh, Andrew Womack had a psalm, Psalm 78, that, to back up this idea of limiting God. Listen again.
2: By your small thinking. Then he took him to Psalm seventy-eight forty-one that says, "They turned back and limited God; they tempted God. They limited the Holy One of Israel."
0: All right, Psalm seventy-eight verse forty-one. If you have your Bible, flip on over to there. And uh, oddly enough, I had closed my. Bible application prior to starting the program, which means I have to actually whirl it back up again, and uh, now I've got it whirled up, I can actually take a look at the Hebrew here. Psalm 78, Psalm 78, and the verse in question is verse 41, that teaches that we can somehow limit the Holy One of Israel. Okay, let's add a little bit of context, and uh, (laughs) yeah, I can see what's going on in the Hebrew right off the bat. (laughs) Okay, this is going to be fun. Okay, sorry, sorry, I just had to take a look ahead and you know look at what I was looking at. Okay, so Psalm seventy-eight. We'll add our three rules for sound biblical exegesis: there, context, context, context. Here's what it says: in spite of all this, they still sinned. Yeah, so you can read about uh, how God took them you know out of uh, out of slavery how he fed them in the wilderness you know that's this is what's being talked about here the exodus if you would and then Psalm 78:32 picks up with in spite of all of this they still sinned despite his wonders they did not believe so he made their days vanish like a breath and their years in in terror when he killed them they uh, they sought him they repented and sought God earnestly they remembered that God was their rock the most high god their redeemer but they Flattered him with their mouths, they lied to him with their tongues, their heart was not steadfast toward him, they were not faithful to his covenant, yet he, being compassionate, atoned for their iniquity and did not destroy them. He restrained his anger often and did not stir up all of his wrath. Well, so we're talking about God's mercy, even in the face of some pretty nasty wickedness. He remembered that they were but flesh and a wind that passes and comes not again. How often they rebelled against him in the wilderness and grieved him in the desert. They tested God again and again and provoked the Holy One of Israel. That's Psalm 78, verse 41. So apparently there's a translation out there that has uh, the translation, and they limited the Holy One of Israel. No, the uh, the Hebrew word, by the way, there is uh, tawah, and uh, yeah, it that's yeah, tawa, and it means to provoke. To so they, they that's exactly what it it literally means. So, they provoked the holy one of Israel. They did not remember his power or the day when he redeemed them from the foe. But uh, when he performed his signs in Egypt and marvels in the fields of Zoan, he turned their rivers into blood, so they could not drink of their streams. So, yeah, so notice what's going on here. Apparently, uh, Andrew Womack engaged in something called proof texting, proof texting. (sighs) Yeah, so, by the way, Scripture really nowhere teaches that you can limit God's power by your small thinking. Not at all. You can provoke him by your sinfulness and lack of faith. But limit him? No, not at all. Scripture does not teach that you can limit God. Moving along, it's time for a uh, Stephen Furtick update, which requires us to do this.
4: Pray, then I heard the real gospel. Heard the real gospel, and you're so vain. You'll probably think the Bible's about you. You're so vain. I bet you think the Bible's about you. Don't you? Don't you?
0: All right, so uh, apparently, Stephen Furtick is back from Australia, suffering from jet lag. And uh, well, apparently when he's jet lagging, he goes into hyper-narcissistic eisegesis mode. And uh, to the point where it's like a caricature. It's so bad. So uh, we're going to listen to his <laughs> a portion of his latest sermon entitled Stretch Marks. <laughs> yeah, no joke. Let me go ahead and back off on the music. So yeah, the name of the sermon is Stretch Marks. And uh, I'll let Stephen Furtick explain, but, uh, you know, get ready because there isn't a biblical passage that he has not figured out how to make it about him or about Elevation Church. No joke. Here we go. Here's stretch marks. I'm up for it.
3: Are you ready for the word? (laughs) Acts chapter 3, verse 1 through 10. After I read this, you can be seated. But don't sit down too comfortably because you will want to jump up. This is one of those messages. I want to speak to you today from Acts chapter 3 for the first installment of our series called Stretch Marks. How many know that your strength is in the stretch? Beyond what you think you're able to do, beyond the possibilities that you've imagined for yourself. That's where God meets you. And he shows you who you can become. Uh,
0: where are you getting any of that? It's, apparently God meets you in the stretch so that he can show you who you can become. Really? Where did you find that in the Bible? Because that ain't in Acts
3: chapter 3. In Jesus' name. Acts chapter 3, verse 1. I'm excited to preach from this passage. It's one of my favorite passages in the Bible. When the Lord told me I could preach from Acts 3, I was, ex- I was more excited than, than Chris Brown at the scoop next section of All Saints.
0: Mm-hmm. Uh, So apparently God gave him permission to,
3: you know, preach from Acts 3. Right? So much good stuff in here. Such a selection. I think I still got a little bit of jet lag if you want to know the truth about it. One day, Peter and John were going up to the temple at the time of prayer. 3 in the afternoon. Now, a man who was lame from birth was being carried to the temple gate called Beautiful, where he was put every day to beg from those going into the temple courts. When he saw Peter and John about to enter, he asked them for money. Peter looked straight at him as did John. And Peter said, look at us. So the man gave them his attention, expecting to get something from them. Quick life principle. If you give God your attention, he'll always exceed your expectation.
1: What?
0: (laughs) So there's a principle in there. If If you'll give God your attention, then he'll exceed your expectation. Excuse me while I beat my head against my
3: desk. Really? Then Peter said, Silver or gold I do not have, but what I do have I give you. You've spent all week worried about what you lack.
1: Um.
0: You spent all week worried about what you... What are you talking about? You worrying
3: about what you lack has nothing to do with this story. You spent all week frustrated about what's not working. Peter said, I'm going to take the attention off what I don't have and put my focus on the action that I can take in the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth.
1: Now, did you notice he added
0: words to the Bible? No joke, no joke. You know, he claims he's reading it right now, but he's not. He's actually sticking words in. I'm going to back
3: this up. Listen again. He's going to stick words in. I give you. You've spent all week worried about what you lack. You've spent all week frustrated about what's not working. Peter said, I'm going to take the attention off what I don't have and put my focus on the action that I can take. Uh, what?
1: Uh,
0: see, those, those words are not in the text, They're and they're not even implied in the text. And he fixed his attention on them, expecting to receive something from them. But Peter said, I have no silver and gold, but what I have I do give you in the name of in the name of Jesus of Nazareth, rise up and walk. And he took him by the right hand and raised him up, and immediately his feet and ankles were made strong, and leaping up he stood and began to walk and entered the temple with them walking and leaping and praising God. And all the people saw him walking and praising God and recognized him as the one who sat at the beautiful gate of the temple asking for alms, and they were filled with wonder and amazement at what had happened to him. Now, i point this out. Furtick just said he's going to be preaching on Acts 3, 1 through 10. But see, the thing is, is that um, that's like telling half of a joke, you know, because the punchline is not the man got up and walked. The punchline is the message that goes with this miracle because the miracle points to the message. You know, Oftentimes, miracles in the Bible are there to support and buttress the preaching of the gospel. So that's what's happening here. So verse 11, "...while he clung to Peter and John, all the people uh, utterly astounded ran, toge- ran together to them in the portico called Solomon's. And when Peter saw it, he addressed the people, men of Israel." Why do you wonder at this or why do you stare at us as though by our own power or piety we have made him walk? The God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob, the God of our fathers glorified his servant Jesus, whom you delivered over and denied in the presence of Pilate when he had decided to release him. But you denied the holy and righteous one and asked for a murderer to be granted to you, and you killed the author of life. "...whom God raised from the dead. To this we are all witnesses. And by and his name, by faith in his name, has made this man strong, whom you see and know. And the faith that is through Jesus has given the, the man this perfect health in the presence of you all. And now, brothers, I know that you acted in ignorance, as did also your rulers. But what God foretold by the mouth of all of the prophets, that his Christ, his Messiah, would suffer, he thus fulfilled. So repent, therefore." And turn back that your sins may be blotted out and that times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord and that he may send the Christ appointed for you, Jesus, whom heaven must receive until the time for restoring all the things about which God spoke by the mouth of the holy prophets long ago. So what did Peter do? He preached repentance and the forgiveness of sins. In other words, this passage of scripture isn't about stretch marks. Or anything like that. But what we're going to do, we're going to pause, we're going to take our first break, and when we come back, we'll continue with our Stephen Furtick update. If you'd like to email me regarding anything you've heard on this edition or any previous editions of Fighting for the Faith, you can do so. My email address is talkback at fightingforthefaith.com, or you can subscribe on Facebook, Facebook.com forward slash pirate Christian. Follow me on Twitter, my name there at pirate Christian. Quick break. The balance of our Stephen Furtick update and email in the next half of the first hour. Stay tuned, don't want to miss it.
1: Python's Flying Circus Church. New from Los Lobos Ministry Records. An album that's just oozing with the love of Christ. It's Pastor Perry Noble's new techno praise album entitled More Like Jesus. The songs on this album will melt your face off in a sanctified way. This album includes... The number one purpose-driven praise techno dance song of all time entitled Well, you might just wanna hear it for yourself.
6: If you are what about the jackass in the church, the jackass in the church is the person that always screams, I wanna go deeper. You know what I tell people to say that around here? You're only as deep as the last person you served. You know what I tell people to say that around here, you're only as deep as the last person you served what about the jackass in the church? The jackass in the church is the person that always screams, I want to go deeper. Parent, what about the jackass in the church? The jackass in the church is the person that always screams, I want to go deeper.
1: Don't you feel closer to Jesus after hearing that sample? Well, we've got another one for you, too. This one's entitled, You Officially Suck. I think that you officially suck as a human being. I think that you officially suck as a human being. I'm playing games, we all. I think that you officially suck as a human being. I'm not playing games. I think that you officially suck as a human being. Other tracks include Your Grandma Smokes Weed and like hanging out with people that make me uncomfortable act now and most levels ministry will even throw in the free bonus track by steven furtick entitled because they're stupid here's a sample
3: because they're stupid because they're stupid a lot of people don't like rock and roll in church because they're stupid because they're stupid because they're stupid because they're stupid, cause they're stupid, cause they're stupid. A lot of people don't like rock and roll in church, because they're stupid, because they're stupid. Cause they're stupid.
4: Because
3: they're, they're stupid. A lot of people don't like rock and roll in church, because they're stupid. Because they're stupid.
1: So act now and get Pastor Perry Noble's brand new Techno praise album entitled More Like Jesus.
0: Listening to Fighting for the Faith could cause you to think that the Bible is not about you, that it's about Jesus. And, well, that's because it is about Jesus, it isn't about you. Just a reminder, Fighting for the Faith is listener-supported radio. That means we depend upon you and your generous gifts and financial contributions in order to continue to bring Fighting for the Faith to you into the world. And you can partner with us by visiting our website, fightingforthefaith.com. When you get there, you'll see our two friendly yellow buttons. One says donate, the other says join our crew. When you join our crew... You're signing up to automatically contribute $8.95 every month. That's it, to the ongoing work and mission of Fighting for the Faith and Pirate Christian Radio. That is a great way to support us. And if you'd like to specify the amount that you would like to contribute, you can do so by clicking on the Donate button, or you can make your gift payable to Fighting for the Faith and then send it to Post Office Box 13344 Grand Forks, North Dakota, zip code 58208. And let me thank you for your support, because we truly cannot do what we are doing here without it. All right, here's the balance of our Stephen Furtick update as we listen to him well <laughs> a portion of his sermon titled Stretch Marks, as he narsagites through um, Acts chapter 3, verses 1 through 10.
3: In the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, one word, walk. Walk. Get moving. Get moving. Taking him by the right hand, he helped him up. And instantly, the man's feet and ankles became strong. He jumped to his feet and began to walk. And then he went with him into the temple courts, walking, jumping, praising God, shouting, screaming, and hollering. Declaring the victory. When all the people saw him walking and praising God, they recognized him as the same man who used to sit. Don't get too used to the way I am right now. Uh, <laughs> I mean, this story isn't about you. I mean, no, no
0: joke. He's reading a historical narrative. There's the guy who's been healed, and Furtick is not interested in giving the the sermon that pre, that Peter delivered, the one that calls people to repent of their sins and to be forgiven. You know, the one that says, you know, you you handed you know him over and murdered the Christ. You know, you know that stuff. Yeah, no. I mean, w- watch how quickly he does this. He's on the, is, he's in, in one breath talking about the man in the narrative who's been healed and immediately apparently this has some kind of implication and a weird one at that regarding you
3: when all the people saw him walking and praising God they recognized him yeah. as the same man who used to sit don't get too used to the way I am right now
0: uh, <laughs> yeah this text isn't about anything like that
3: cause I'm on my way
0: somewhere Uh, You're not in this text, uh, Stephen. I'm in a metamorphosis. Uh, This isn't about your metamorphosis either.
3: I'm not going to be like this in 2016.
0: Uh, I'm not going to be like this in 2016. Yeah, because that's what that passage is
3: about. He's taking me from glory to glory.
0: Yeah, all the glory to you, Stephen. All the glory to you.
3: From strength to strength by his strength.
0: yeah i feel like he needs to you know come on and do it you know he's been getting a standing o here you know he needs to come out and you know (laughs) do an encore or something what on earth are we listening how how is this preaching touch somebody next to you say don't get used to this don't get used to this don't get used uh yeah uh, all right
3: this is just the beta version
0: yeah because right you the whole thing's about you and the beta version of you right
3: i said this is just the beta version
0: yeah, and I just said you narsageted yourself into this text, and you ain't in there.
3: I'm about to be better.
0: You're big deal. You're still not in Acts 3.
3: Better, better, better.
0: Yeah, you can be as better as you want to be. You still ain't in Acts 3. Let me finish. Oh, please. <laughs> it's not as if you have done enough damage. You might as well continue to do more. That way you can leave a whole
3: wake of theological destruction behind you. They recognized him as the same man who used to sit begging at the temple gate, called beautiful. That meant he looked the same, but he wasn't the same. And they were filled with wonder and amazement at what had happened to him. What had happened was he got moving. I want to announce my title of this message for week one of the series, and I want to use a declaration for a title. But I need you to high-five ten people and give them my sermon title. Will you do that? Come on, Gaston, will you do that? Rock Hill, will you do it? University City, will you do it? High-five five. 10 people and tell them, I'm up for it.
0: (laughs) I'm up for it. What? With a title like that, there's no way that he can actually land on his feet and correctly handle this text. I'm up for it. Yeah, I'm not down with this. Come on, I don't even know what it is yet, but I'm up for it. I don't know. Yeah, you
3: got them busy talking
0: nonsense. I
3: don't know what challenges this week is going to bring my way. But I want you to know right now, whatever it is, I'm up for it. Hallelujah. Boy, I feel something in this church today.
0: Yeah, I, I feel heresy all up in here, you know.
5: Up for it. Amen.
3: Yeah, they're amening themselves, I guess. All right, now get down with it. Take a seat. Isn't that funny how I'm up for it and I'm down with it basically mean the same thing?
0: Mm-hmm. Boy, that's so deep, it's unfathomable.
3: Two, two different people in this passage we could focus on. We could focus on the pair, Peter and John, who were why aren't you focusing on
0: Jesus because if you'd read the rest of the story like I did it's a it's a story of really about Jesus Jesus is the one who healed that man and Christ and him crucified for the forgiveness of our sins was proclaimed by Peter and then the call for people to repent and to be forgiven was right there in his message why are you only why can you say you can focus on you know the the guy who was healed or we can focus on Peter and John When the story isn't about any of those guys. It's actually about Jesus.
3: Or we could focus on the beggar who was down.
0: Yeah, and what he's really meaning by that is we can focus on ourselves.
3: And yet in any given day, we will all find ourselves in each position, won't we?
0: Uh huh. Yeah, see, there we go. And in any given day, we'll find ourselves. Yeah, I have not yet found myself in first century Judea um you know shortly after jesus's ascension you happening to wander into the temple to hear the apostles preach yeah just just haven't found myself in that position nor have i found myself a beggar in first century judea dropped off outside the the beautiful gate as people are walking into the temple in order to beg for alms so i don't see myself in this text at all because
3: when i read it i ain't in it there's going to be some times where I get to stretch my hand to someone. Stretch. Everybody say stretch. I get to stretch my hand to someone who's down. And there there are going to be those other times where I need to look up. And I need somebody to stretch out to me. Uh. Oh, this is painful. And help me do what I can't do for myself. So I don't know if you're up or down today. But when you leave here, you're going to be up for it. Uh.
0: Yeah, see, again, um, see, here's the problem, and I'll kind of overcook the point here. The Bible's about Jesus. It's not about you. What he's doing here is robbing Christ of his glory because Christ is the one who healed that man. And Christ is the one who is proclaimed by Peter on that same day on the occasion of the healing of that man. And Peter said he wasn't the one who healed him; that Jesus was the one who healed him. And he called people to repent and to be forgiven. He preached the gospel. And Stephen Furtick thinks it's about you and finding yourself. You know, let's talk about the times when you feel like you're down and you need to be lifted up, or when you're up and you're lifting up, lifting up somebody who's down. This story isn't about any of that. And so, with that, it's pretty clear. You know, just five minutes and thirty seconds into the sermon, there's no way. That Stephen Furtick is going to rightly handle this text because he's working from a completely false assumption. And the false assumption is that the Bible is about him rather than about Christ. And that is the problem over and again with Stephen Furtick. And he still won't repent and preach Jesus, which is really sad for him and for everybody who's under his teaching because they're not being taught the truth. All right, email time. <laughs> That's our email update music, and uh, we're trying to catch up here with our emails. Hopefully, we'll be able to pull this off today. Okay, first email. Oh, boy. Yeah, I don't know where Steve is from. Steve is uh, the the one who wrote this email, and I do not have a city-state. I do not know where he's from. By the way, the rule here at Fighting for the Faith is if I don't know where you're from, then... Uh, yeah then uh, I, I invent a place. And now I understand that he posted this on my Facebook wallet sometime, but see, he also emailed it to me. So I, I'm not going to go into Facebook now and try to figure out where he's from. So Steve is from Kathmandu. Just, you know, just saying. All right. So uh, Steve writes, he says, uh, yeah, this is uh, a comment, by the way, that he left, you know, regarding Rick Warren's claim that Jesus uh, never did a miracle to show off. Yeah, l- listen to this. This is a quote. Quote, Jesus never did a miracle to show off. Every miracle is to teach a spiritual truth. End quote. That's uh, Rick Warren. Steve then says, Oh, Rick, a slippery eel you are. (laughs) This is one of those statements he makes so often that it is true, but not how he utilizes it. Take, for instance, Chris Roseboro's example about Jesus walking on the water. Yes, there's a spiritual truth to be learned that Jesus as... Chris commented that would be, is God, and we can trust that he's got everything under control, and then to realize that this awesome person is my friend and my king and my God. Sigh. All the weight comes off of me, and the result is that my heart burns with adoration for my gracious God. But Rick Warren would turn it all around and try to teach the so-called principle of not only how you could walk on the water, but also how you should be walking on the water as well. And if you're not, so if something is spiritually wrong with you, at least. That would be the implication. The result of this being a crushing weight of guilt for not pulling it off and an attitude of either condemnation or anger at God for requiring such things from people. And what's even worse is the next week that he'll be teaching you another impossible principle to try to apply to your life, even though you haven't gotten the walking on the water thing down yet. Burden after burden after burden, week after week after week. I used to go to churches Like that, and can't say that I developed anything except animosity towards such a demanding deity. Rick Warren should apply the spiritual principle of James 3, verse 1. Not many of you should become teachers, my brothers, for you know that we who teach will be judged with greater strictness. Steve, great points, and uh, that's the reason why I read it on the air because you're right. Over and again, when a pastor preaches so called principles that you need to apply to your life, that's law preaching. And uh, and so you leave church with a to do list. You know you got this week. I got to walk on water. Okay, so and then you know listen to what we heard, just heard from Stephen Furtick. Oh, and also this. Not only do I need to walk on water this week, I also I have to be the guy that lifts up other people. Or if I'm down, I need to be lifted up by people. Right. Got it. So, you know, these are my to-do lists, right? And then next week you got something else you've got to do. You got to feed 5,000 people, you know, and, and then, you know, the week after that, you know, you need to raise from the dead and, you know, and, and then, then, then you need to find your dream destiny and then you got to, de- and all this crushing weight, you know, week after week after week to do, to do, to do, to do, to do, to do, and you are not pulling it off. And, uh, and for a lot of people, they just collapse under the weight why because you were never you were never meant to be burdened like that. Christ says my my yoke is easy, my burden is light. Christ calls us to repent, to believe, to be forgiven. He's done it all for us. He's set us free. And now because we've been set free in Christ because of what he's done for us and because of how awesome he is, we now are free to love and serve our neighbors knowing that we're going to fall short. knowing that and yet knowing that there's forgiveness in Christ. One is law and gospel, the other is just law, so... All right, um, Grant writes, and uh, let's see, I don't know where Grant is from. So Steve was from Kathmandu. Grant, we're going to make from, uh, well, let's see here, Seattle, Washington. Yeah, good friends with, uh, with uh, Mark Driscoll. Uh, Grant writes, he says, This is a genuine question that has been nagging me after hearing your snark <laughs> on the false gospel of God wants you to dream bigger and prosper and stuff. I do not wish to defend these preachers in any way who don't preach that we're terrible sinners, who have no hope of saving ourselves, but Christ saves us willingly through his selfless sacrifice on the cross, and that's the only source of salvation that we'll ever have, and all that good stuff. I'm a layperson, I have the gist of the gospel, but can't rattle off the theologically sound and precise version as effortlessly as you do, and if I were to write a theology book, it would fit on one and a half squares of toilet paper. Okay. However, in your snarkiness, one might get the impression that you are opposed to the pursuit of dreams, period. I know this isn't the case, because when you snark on Dream Again Part 2 with Chris Songson, South Hills Church, Corona, California, February 3rd, 2011, you express that your dream is for false teachers to repent and their listeners to rebel. Obviously, you're pursuing that dream by continuing your show to this day, and I plan on listening often in hopes of becoming just a tiny bit smarter. But what about uh, what about dreams Dreams in general. For example, what if I have a dream of getting a uh, a board game published, and not even uh, a Christian-themed one at that, but an abstract strategy game based upon the Chinese logic. Puzzles uh, Lits, L-I-T-S. A few years ago, I managed to get that board game published with a small company in Spain, which required raising several hundred dollars from online contributors and from people in my church who had faith in my dream. And what of my dream of being published in a puzzle magazine, which I entertained for many years before a door suddenly opened, allowing me to get published in Will Shortz's Wordplay. Again, this is a, a secular publication. However, seeing my byline fills me with pride, and I hope to continue published being published there because puzzles are awesome. It is wrong to be is it wrong to be pursuing these dreams or is it merely wrong to be preaching the pursuit of these dreams as a competing message to the true gospel as your beef with the purpose driven movement seems to be, I truly desire to know. Good question. By the way, the answer Grant is is actually pretty simple. I'm not opposed to Christians following a dream for their life, okay? If you want to be a firefighter, you want to be a jet pilot, you want to be somebody who has your puzzles published in a, in a, in a big puzzle magazine, or you want to write crosswords for the New York Times— I think those are fantastic dreams and things to aspire to in your vocation. But see, the thing is this, is that the way the purpose-driven movement preaches these types of things, they are turning this into a false gospel, and they're teaching this as if this is like the heart and center of Christian doctrine, and it's not um yeah nowhere in scripture are you going to find that God lays a dream on your heart you know and that you're and that somehow the job of a pastor or a ministry is to help you achieve that dream no, that's not it at all. The, the Christian message is about repentance and the forgiveness of sins and then serving your neighbor in your vocation. And if being the best at serving your neighbor in your vocation, you know, it ha- makes you dream of doing it in a better way, I mean, that's all well and good. But, you know, Christian doctrine and the job of a pastor has nothing to do with helping you achieve your dreams, there's nothing wrong per se in pursuing them, although it w- it could be easy for your dream to become an idol in your life or somehow the attaining of that dream is focusing on glory for yourself and gives you a, a – a, well, rather than a good sense of pride in your work – Creates a sense of pride that's devilish. Remember, the devil's sin is pride. So you, you got to be careful how you you know you know if you're going to pursue this that you're not pursuing it in a way that gratifies your flesh and seeks glory for you in a way that is sinful and prideful in a satanic way. You, you understand what I'm saying? But my big beef is is that what's being preached from the pulpit is as if this is somehow the gospel. This is somehow the good news that uh, Christianity has to proclaim, and well. It's not, if you, you kind of get the idea of what I'm saying. Next email here. Oh, man, I'm not going to get through all my emails. Um, real quick, Andrew Ramsey writes, from Urietta, California, short one here. <laughs> got to watch my time. Oh, yeah, yeah, I'm running out of time. Okay, so, uh, Andrew writes, he says, uh, I was listening to Chuck, a Chuck Smith's sermon the other day on one of the pastoral epistles because I had uh, had to do it for my homework. He said, in this one sermon, that there's a difference between teaching and preaching, and he said that preaching was mostly for the unsaved, and then once you get saved, you need to ins- you need instruction rather than to be preached at. I know he's gone on to be with the Lord, so I can't necessarily challenge a dead guy. However, in listening to the Liberate discussion panel, my baloney meter seems to be going off. Can you help me discern the truth from the almost true? And by the way, I had Andrew send me the... Um, chuck smith sermon in question and i can understand the genesis of the of the question and i think i also understand the point that chuck smith was making in it and uh and let me fact let me pull up a uh a text real quick because i want to see something in my greek new testament uh second timothy chapter four and i want to see what let's see here the time is coming. Okay, okay. Here it is. 2 Timothy chapter 4, charging the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who's to judge of the living and the dead, and by his appearing in his kingdom to preach the word. Now, here's the idea, okay, is that when you listen to Chuck Smith, Andrew, when you listen to the sermon, he's trying to make a difference between gospel proclamation. I think he's he's defining. Um, preaching in that sense as a narrowing, you know, as a narrow definition. So the idea is is that there's kind of a wide definition for uh, the word Caruso and there's a narrow definition for Caruso. The problem is this is that the Bible teaches both a wide and a narrow sense, and the narrow sense um, also refers to Christians. So, we, you know, so the answer, real answer to your question is found in 2 Timothy chapter 4. I charge you in the pres- verse one, I charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead and by his appearing and his kingdom to get this, preach the word. And so preaching the word in this context, this is a pastoral epistle, the words for preach, uh, the uh, the verb Caruso, uh, which means to proclaim here, this is a proclamation and preaching of the Word to Christians. Not to unbelievers. So, in that sense, Chuck Smith kind of missed the boat. He was an error. But I think in listening to him, and I want to, and I basically want to put the best construction on the way he used the word. He was thinking of it in the sense of, um, you know, you know, of proclaiming Christ crucified to those who are not believers. And so, you know, in in so in in one sense, he's kind of right because here's the deal: is that when we're preaching the word. Uh, you know, we're not preaching and proclaiming the gospel in a way to the people who are under our care as pastors as if they're unbelievers. So if if preaching the word means, you know, kind of an evangelistic proclamation of Christ crucified and calling people to repentance and the forgiveness of sins with the understanding that they're not believers, and if that's how you're defining uh, preach, you know, Caruso in that sense, well, yeah, he's right. We don't preach, we teach. But the thing is, is that that preaching also is understood as proclaiming God's word. And that proclamation is, includes the gospel and it's for Christians as well. So, yeah, the issue is, is that he kind of missed the way uh, the, the word is used. And he, he, I guess a good way to think of it is this way. When we talk about um, the gospel... Okay, The gospel has a wide and a narrow sense in which it is defined in Scripture. The gospel in its wide sense, you can talk about you know, the gospel of Mark. Well, it's the whole story of what Christ has done for us. And gospel in that sense is the whole life, death, teaching, resurrection, everything that Jesus did. That's the gospel. But then gospel also has a narrow sense, and it's the proclamation of Christ crucified for our sins. So you've got to be careful... Where there's words in Scripture that have a wide and a narrow sense, that you don't pit the two definitions against each other and then somehow exclude uh, a, a valid way of looking at it. And preaching has kind of a wide and narrow sense in which it's used in uh, in uh, the New Testament. And so, you know, having listened to Chuck Smith on this, I think he erred because he was he he had in mind only one one particular meaning for Caruso. And um, and in you know if if he were right I mean he would be he would have a point the issue is is that he wasn't paying attention that Caruso was used in, also in preaching and proclaiming to Christians so I hope that answers the question and I'm getting really close to the bottom of my email pile but I'm not quite there yet but we are out of time for this email segment so. We'll have to pick this up next time. Now, if you'd like to email me regarding anything you've heard on this edition or any previous editions of Fighting for the Faith, you can do so. My email address is talkback at fightingforthefaith.com or you can subscribe on Facebook. It's Facebook.com forward slash Pirate Christian. Follow me on Twitter. My name there at Pirate Christian. Quick break. When we come back, we're going to end the week off with three. Christ centered sermons. I think that's a good way of putting it, since one of them is mine. Stay tuned. Don't want to miss it. We'll be right back.
5: Living a life of purpose can't save you. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith.
0: High Ridge Christian Radio Theater presents Death of a Salesman. Are
1: ye a salesman? Why, yes, I am. Can I interest you in some. <laughs> Rah!
6: listening to Byron
1: Christian Radio. We're going to take a look at the ecclesiastical model employed
0: by much of American evangelicalism today, especially as put forward by the seeker-driven
1: movement. Chris Rosebro talking about his presentation at this summer's Issues Etc. Making the Case Conference. We're going to take a look at where this idea of a
0: vision-casting leader comes from, what its main tenets are, and we're going to compare that so-called ecclesiastical office to the biblical office of pastor to see if the two are actually synonymous and interchangeable or if this concept of a vision-casting leader actually turns a pastor into a false
6: prophet.
1: You can meet and hear Chris Rosebro making the case against vision casting leaders in the church June 19th and 20th at the Issues Etc. Making the Case Conference in Collinsville, Illinois. For more information, visit issuesetc.org or call 618-223-8385. The Issues Etc. Making the Case Conference. All right, we're back. Hour
0: number two of Fighting for the Faith. We're going to end the week off with a couple, well, three Christ-centered, cross-focused sermons. Two of them will be on the same text. One of them will be an alternate reading. I think uh, Wolf Mueller is using the one-year lectionary, whereas Pastor Rody and myself were using the three-year lectionary. But let's do this right. We review it all here at Fighting for the Faith. We're an equal opportunity sermon reviewing service. We have three sermons that we're going to end the week off with today. And uh, the first one is actually from Hope Lutheran Church in Aurora, Colorado. Pastor Brian Wolfmuller presiding. The name of the sermon that we will be listening to is entitled Joy and Hope and Resurrection. And he is going to be preaching from the Gospel of John, chapter 16, verses 16 through 22. The second sermon is from Meet Well Me and uh, the church that I serve up in Oslo, Minnesota, and uh, the sermon that I'm going to be preaching or delivering for you here is entitled The Good Shepherd is No Hireling, and it's on the Gospel of John, chapter 10, verses 11 through 18. And sermon number three is from uh, Faith Lutheran Church, Capistrano Beach, California, and that's uh, Pastor Jeremy Rody and he's also preaching on the Gospel of John, chapter 10, verses 11 through 18, and his is entitled The Good Shepherd. Whew! That was Gymnastics match there. Woohoo. Anyway, uh, let me go ahead and back off on the music, and what I'm going to do is I'm going to read the text that forms the basis for Pastor Wolf Mueller's text, and the reason I'm going to do that, I'm going to read it, uh, and then we'll play his sermon, we'll, and then we'll end, and uh, I'll go ahead and put my sermon right in the middle, I actually read the gospel text for, uh, before my sermon, so you'll be able to hear that, and then Pastor Rody will be preaching on the same text that I'm preaching on, and you'll notice we take two different approaches to the text altogether, uh, but uh, the idea is law, gospel, sin, grace, good exegesis, uh, repentance, forgiveness of sins, placarding Christ in his saving office for us, that's the idea, that's... Um, those are kind of the major elements of good preaching, if you would. So Pastor Wolf Mueller's sermon is based upon the Gospel of John, chapter 16, starting at verse 16. Here's how it reads A little while and you will see me no longer, and again a little while and you will see and you will see me. So some of his disciples said to one another, What is this that he says to us? A little while and you will not see me, and again a little while and you will see me, because I am going to the Father. So they were saying, What does he mean by a little while? We do not know what he is talking about. Jesus knew that they wanted to ask, what they wanted to ask him, so he said to them, Is this what you are asking yourselves, what I meant by saying, A little while and you will not see me, and again, a little while and you will see me? Truly, truly, amen, amen, I say to you, you will weep and lament, but the world will rejoice. You will be sorrowful, but your sorrow will turn into joy. When a woman is giving birth, she has sorrow because her hour has come, But when she has delivered the baby, she no longer remembers the anguish for joy that a human being has been born into the world. So also, you have sorrow now, but I I will see you again, and your hearts will rejoice, and no one will take your joy from you. This is the text that forms the basis of Pastor Brian Wolf Mueller's sermon entitled Joy, Hope, and
6: Resurrection. Here we go. Jesus. Amen. Christ is arisen. Hallelujah. Dear saints, a little while, says Jesus, in the text, in the gospel reading, a little while, seven times. A little while and you will not see me. A little while and you will see me. Some of his disciples said to one another, what is this that he says to us? A little while and you will not see me. And again, a little while and you will see me And because I'm going to the Father. So they're asking, what does he mean by a little while? We do not know what he is talking about. But we know. This little while is the little while that our Lord Jesus had to rest in the grave. The little while was the time between the crucifixion and the resurrection. And now Jesus, on the night before his crucifixion, is telling his disciples that I'm going to be gone for a little while. And the result is that you will be sorrowful. And the world will rejoice. But then, Jesus says, a little while later, three days we know, and I will be with you. And the result, you will have joy. Great joy. Unassailable joy that cannot be taken from you. I'm going to die, says Jesus, but I will be back. And this is the point. The joy and the sorrow of Jesus' disciples is bound up to how it is with Jesus. Now, I want to think about this and meditate on this this morning. The joy of the disciple is bound up to how it is with Jesus. So our own joy is bound up to Jesus. Now, the question to begin to diagnose ourselves and the state of our own conscience with this question, with with, with this consideration, is this question. What gives you joy? Now, I hope and pray that that is a long list of things. That we have joy in our family, that we have joy in our life, that we have joy in our work, that we have joy in the things that we see and the things that we hear and the things that we taste and smell. Of course, I suppose not every smell would give us joy. (laughs) Or everything we taste or see would give us joy. But we would have joy in some of these things. That we would watch the sunset over the mountains and have joy. That we would watch our children or grandchildren take their first step. Or the dog chasing the squirrels. Or whatever it is that makes you smile. And we have joy in these things. And, and it's not only joy in the, in the things that we see and the things we hear and taste and touch. But that we have joy that we can see and that we can hear. That we can taste and smell that this itself is already good and a good gift from the Lord. And we have joy in all the things that the Lord provides. Clothing and shoes, food and drink, house and home, good friends, good neighbors, good weather, all the things that we need to support this body and life. We we have joy in the good conversation between husband and wife, the good conversation that we have between friends in our family, even in our church congregation, and it's good to have joy, to in fact, to delight in these things. But there is danger also in this. And I suppose the way to get at it is, is in this, that if we find joy in the things of this life, in and of themselves, apart from God, and we find joy in these things, not as gifts from the Lord, but in things that we've earned or things that have simply come to us, then this joy is dangerous. We're to delight ourselves in the Lord. In fact, the Scripture specifically commands us that our joy is to be bound up to God. And in fact, as as the disciples learned this day, that our joy is bound up to Jesus and not to the ups and downs of this life. If it is, we we live in a dangerous place. And I I think this this danger manifests itself in two ways. First, like this. If we have joy in the things of this world only, then they can be taken away. If we find our joy, for example, in the Rockies, (laughs) then Friday is a glorious day and yesterday, not so much. In fact, If we find our joy in the Rockies, then April and May are normally very joyful months, and August and September very sorrowful months, right? (laughs) And that is the same with all of the things of this world. If we find joy in our health, then our health is soon gone. You know that. If we find joy in the life, even in the lives of our loved ones, then that soon is taken away. If we find joy in and of itself in our, in our work or in our friends or in peace in the world or in whatever it is, then it's soon gone. I mean, the devil puts trouble everywhere. The devil hates it when husband and wife love one another and deal kindly with each other. So he comes with violence even into our homes, with, with temptation, with boredom, with whatever he can to disrupt the love of husband and wife. The devil hates it when parents and children love each other, so he comes in with frustration or with the temptation to rebellion or anger or whatever he can do to wreck what is good. The devil hates it when you have a good friend and you have a healthy and good conversation with that friend. He hates it when you have a bit to eat for dinner or when you have money in the bank. The devil hates it when you remember to bring your umbrella to church and it's raining. He hates it all. He hates it when there's peace and quiet in the church, when pastor and people love each other and delight together in hearing the Lord's word and praying for each other and blessing each other. And so the devil assaults all of these things. He brings discord. He brings strife. He brings trouble. He brings temptation into the family, between parents and children, between husband and wife. He brings it into the state between neighbor, fighting against neighbor, or between ruler and citizen. He brings the strife into the church in all sorts of ways in the congregation, outside the congregation, and especially by false teachers in the church who draw our gaze away from Jesus and his mercy to ourselves or to our works or to the other person's sin or to whatever he can. And the result is this, that if our joy is in these things and these are taken away from us, then our joy is also carried away with it. Joy is here one day, and it's gone the next. And this is a problem. But there's another problem, in fact, more serious. There's two, remember, two dangers in finding joy in the things of this world? That's the first, is that it's untrustworthy. But there's there's a, a more fundamental problem, and it is this. If we find our joy apart from Christ, we are, in fact, committing idolatry. Now, this is a hard word for me too, but it's an important word. The first commandment says, you shall have no other gods. What does this mean? We should fear, love, and trust in God above all things. God first above all things. So we could add to that this, that we should find our joy in God above all things. If we look for our joy in anything more than in God himself, then we are in fact worshiping that thing, looking to that thing, putting our trust in that thing, that person or that occasion or whatever it is above God. And that is idolatry. And we have questions to get at our, the idols that we build up in our heart. and One of the, one of the questions that we ask is, what are you afraid of? You, you know how that question goes. When you think about the things that you're afraid of, then then whatever it is, I'm afraid of dying, or I'm afraid of the death of the person that I love, or I'm afraid of this person's disapproval, or I'm afraid of what news the doctor is going to bring, or I'm afraid of the future, or I'm afraid of the past, or whatever it is, that thing that we're afraid of becomes our idol, what we worship. And we can get at our idols in another way with this question. What would take away my joy? What would steal from me my joy? And whatever that is, is an idol. Now, this is a different question than what would make me sad. It is not a sin to be sad. In fact, we see Jesus weeping at the death of Lazarus. Remember that? And the the shortest verse in the Bible, Jesus wept, and they looked and saw Jesus weeping, mourning the death of his friends, and they said, look at how he loved him. This means, because Jesus never sinned in his life, that it is in fact a good work to be sad. That it's a good work to cry, to mourn the death of our loved ones. There's a lot of things that we love and that we care about. Uh, People, uh, uh, the the vocations that the Lord has given to us. And, And when these things are hurt or when they're lost or whatever it is, we're sad. And this is good, a good work. It teaches us to long for the resurrection when Jesus will return and bring it into sin, bring it into death, bring it into tears, bring it into sorrow, all these things. So the question, what takes away my joy, is different than what makes me sad. But this question, what takes away my joy, gets at what do I understand to be the source of my joy? Where do I find contentment in this life? Now here I think is the picture. I'm working on this picture so you all can help me, especially to refine the picture and to see that it's helpful. But here's the picture I want to put in your imagination. Imagine you're a farmer. And you have the water for your crops from this pond that's here. And you use that pond to water, you know, the animals, if you water animals. Is that what you... I, to irrigate great the crops, you know, you're using this pond. That's the source of your water. But now, one day, an enemy or something happens and the, the, the creek that feeds that pond dries up. Now you think to yourself, well, there's no more water? And so you lay down and die, or you go and you track up the creek to figure out what happened and you go up the creek and you realize that there was another pond feeding that pond so now you have another source of water and you use that water to to feed the, or to water the crops or whatever farmers do with water it's <laughs> just until it dries up and so you go to the next pond And the next and the next. And you realize that there's nine ponds, one fed into the other, but they all dry up. And whenever each one dries up, you have a chance to despair, to lose hope, to say the water's gone. Until finally you've gone through all nine of these ponds and you've found at last the spring or the source where the water comes from. And it never runs dry. You see? Now, this is how it is with the Ten Commandments. If I'm looking for my joy and my contentment in the Ninth and Tenth Commandments, that'll be taken away from me. If I'm looking for my joy in my own good name and my reputation, the eighth commandment, that'll be taken away as well. If I'm looking for joy in the seventh commandment, the things of this life, the possessions that the Lord has given me, then that lake dries up also. If I'm looking for joy and contentment in my own identity, in the gift of marriage and children, then that goes away too. If I go to the fifth commandment and I'm looking for joy there in my life, the fact that I have a beating heart, that will end. So I go to the fourth commandment, and I try to find joy that at least there's some sort of order in the world. But that comes crashing down. So now I'm back to the third commandment, to worship to the Lord's Word. But that sometimes, too, is taken away from me. So now I'm back to the second commandment, the gift of prayer. And that at last dries up so that all I'm left with is the first itself, God who stands there and says, I am your God. And that is where our joy comes from. That is the source. That that is the fountain. That is the place that never runs dry. In fact, I think God does this in the Ten Commandments. In the first commandment, he takes away everything from us, everything that we would trust in, everything that we would fear, everything that we would love, every place that we would find our joy, so that there is nothing left but God himself. You shall have no other gods before me. And he is it. He is the source. And when we get there, something quite incredible happens when we've traced the fountain all the way back to the source, then all of a sudden it opens up as a floodgate and flows down and fills all of these other ponds. So now we have prayer in the Lord's name. Now we have worship with the Lord's gifts. Now we have the gift of order in the world, the fourth commandment, all as a gift from God. We have our life, not in and of ourselves, but from the Lord. We have our family and we have our possessions and we have a good reputation and we even have contentment all from the Lord, from him, in his name, as a gift from his goodness and mercy. And so that even though these things might be taken away from us, the devil would come and dry up the seventh commandment pond so that we don't have any stuff, or the devil would come and dry up the fifth commandment pond so that one day we have to go and die, or whatever it is, it doesn't matter, because we know that our joy comes from the source. Itself. See the picture? Delight yourself in the Lord. And he will give you the desires of your heart. Or as it was with the disciples. Your joy will be taken from you and you will be sorrowful. But I will return and you will see me and you will have great joy. And Jesus says. You will have sorrow now. I will see you again and your hearts will rejoice and no one will take your joy From you. This is what we're taught to sing in the hymn. Take they our life, goods, fame, child, and wife, let these all be gone. They yet have nothing won. The kingdom ours remains. If we have the Lord and His goodness, then we have everything. So today, we repent. We repent of looking for joy in all of the gifts of God, rather than in God Himself. And we rejoice that Jesus has so bound us up to Himself that how it is with Him is how it is with our joy. And it is this way with Jesus. He was crucified for you, for your sins, for all that you've done wrong, for every commandment that you've broken, and every commandment that you've failed to keep. He died for those so that he forgives you. And that forgiveness is unassailable. And Jesus is not only dead, but he is raised. He is out of the grave for you. He is at the right hand of God the Father for you. He prays for you. He loves you. He delights in you. And he even finds his joy in you. So we have joy in this. That Jesus is raised for you. And that, dear saints, is a joy that no one can take from you. A joy that will be yours forever. This is your life. This is your hope. And this is your peace. In the name of Jesus, who was raised from the dead. Amen. The peace of God which passes all understanding. Guard your hearts and minds through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. Christ is risen. He is risen indeed. Alleluia. Amen. Next
0: sermon. This one comes from m- m- me, Pastor Roseboro, and I'm preaching on the Gospel of John, chapter 10. I'll actually read the text before we get into the sermon. And uh, I apologize for the length. <laughs> Here we go. The Holy Gospel, according to St. John, chapter 10, verses 11 through 18. I am the Good Shepherd. The Good Shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. The hired hand is not the shepherd who owns the sheep. So when he sees the wolf coming, he abandons the sheep and runs away. Then the wolf attacks the flock and scatters it. The man runs away because he's a hired hand and cares nothing for the sheep. I am the Good Shepherd. I know my sheep. This command I received from my Father. In the name of Jesus. So Jesus is our good shepherd. Now, you'll notice just from the hymn that we sung just now that there's a lot of facets to the picture of Jesus as our good shepherd. And I'm just going to take a look at two of them today because I could literally probably give three or four sermons if we were to try to drill in deep into this idea of Jesus being our good shepherd. And so I first want to point out that the idea of Jesus being our good shepherd, you get pictures of this in the types and shadows in the Old Testament, particularly if you look at King David. King David is both shepherd and king. And real quick, I'll point something out from the story of David and Goliath from 1 Samuel chapter 17. I'll read a few passages from this and kind of point this out. We all know the story. This is right after David is anointed the king of Israel. But there happens to also be a currently reigning king. Kind of creates one of those awkward situations. So David is king but not yet king. It's weird, isn't it? There's some aspects of this that point us to Jesus. So immediately after Jesus is um, anointed, we read this story, chapter 17 for Samuel. Now the Philistines gathered their forces for war and assembled at Succah and Judah. They pitched camp at Ephes Damim between Succah and Azekah. Saul and the Israelites assembled and encamped in the valley of Elah and drew up their battle lines to meet the Philistines. The Philistines occupied one hill, the Israelites another, with a valley between them. Sounds like the perfect setup for a great story. So here comes the tension. A champion named Goliath, who was from Gath, came out of the Philistine camp. He was over nine feet tall. And I always feel bad for Goliath because if only he had lived in the 21st century he would have made at least 50 million dollars a year playing basketball. But I digress. <laughs> I mean seriously, everyone would be cheering for Goliath, you know, the guy would come out on the court. I mean, he, literally all he had to do is put the ball, you know, into the basket and everyone would be, "Goliath, Goliath." You're right. But see, he's the he's the bad guy in the story. So, I, anyway. <laughs> All right, so we read about Goliath, that he was nine, over nine feet tall. He had a bronze helmet, his head on his head, and he wore a coat of scale armor of bronze weighing 5,000 shekels. On his legs were bronze greaves, and a bronze javelin was slung on his back. His spear shaft was like a weaver's rod, and his iron point weighed 600 shekels. His shield-bearer went ahead of him. Goliath stood and shouted to the ranks of Israel, Why do you come out and line up for battle? Am I... Uh, Not a Philistine, and are you not servants of Saul? Choose a man and have him come down to me. If he is able to fight and kill me, we will become your subjects. But if I overcome him and kill him, you will become our subjects and serve us. Then the Philistines said, This day I defy the ranks of Israel. Give me a man and let us fight each other. And on hearing the Philistines' words, Saul and all the Israelites were dismayed and terrified." What a disappointing setup, right? So here we have Goliath, nine feet tall. The guy's decked out in armor, all of the latest weaponry. He's got javelin 2.0. This guy is just awesome to behold. And everyone is fearing him. Why are they fearing him? Because, well, Goliath, like so many people, he trusts in his strength. But who is the strength of Israel? Who is your strength? Not you. God is. And so we begin to see now here kind of the setup where we begin typologically and prophetically to see this idea of the shepherd king who steps onto the battlefield for us. I'll fast forward a little bit to where David, he shows up. And this is what it says. David said to Saul, let no one lose heart on account of this Philistine. Your servant will go and fight him. Now, how old is David at this point? maybe 12, 13. So here we've got this short, ruddy teenager who's going to take on Goliath. But see, that's kind of the thing. It's really not David who's taking on Goliath because who is Goliath defying? He's defying God. And so God chooses the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. So Saul said to David, David, You're not able to go out against this Philistine and fight him. You are only a boy, and he has been a fighting man from his youth. But David said to Saul, Your servant has been keeping his father's sheep. Notice David's first response. I'm a shepherd. I've been keeping your... Your your servant has been keeping his father's sheep. And when a lion or a bear came and carried off a sheep from the flock, I went after it, struck it, and rescued the sheep from its mouth. When it turned on me, I seized it by its hair, struck it, and killed it. Your servant has killed both the lion and the bear. This uncircumcised Philistine will be like one of them because he has defied the armies of the living God. The Lord who delivered me from the paw of the lion and the paw of the bear will deliver me from the hand of this Philistine." So Saul said to David, Go, and the Lord be with you. What an amazing answer. But see, in there we begin to see the typology of the Messiah being our shepherd. And so here David has done these miraculous things, or I should say God has done these miraculous things, through this young shepherd, now who's king, but not yet reigning. And you've got to work that all out. And he says... That when a lion came and carried off a sheep from the flock, I went after it, struck it, and rescued the sheep from its mouth. And this is where we can see ourselves in the story properly. So many times when people read the story, they want to think they're David. No, 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 no. You're the little sheep that got taken away by the lion. And your shepherd has come and rescued you from the mouth of the lion. And that lion is the devil. We're born in his power, under his, under his sway and tyranny. And Christ, our shepherd king, has come and rescued us, and he's done it by dying for us. That's how he rescues us. So this idea of Jesus being our shepherd, it's a deep and rich theme in Scripture. And with that, I want to go back to our gospel text, but I want to show you something about what aspect we're talking about. Is Jesus as our shepherd in our gospel text today? And that requires us to understand what's going on in the story in which Jesus makes these amazing statements about being our good shepherd. So if you have the Bible, go open to the Gospel of John, chapter 9. We're going to put this story in its context, and I think you'll find there's something really rich and deep going on here. John, chapter 9, verse 1. Here's what it says. As he, Jesus, went along, he saw a man blind from birth. So his disciples asked Jesus, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? Now, this is an important question because the assumption in Jesus' day, and unfortunately in ours too, is that if something terrible has happened to somebody, that the only possible explanation is that God is punishing them for their sins. Now, it is true that God does punish for sins. But not every time we have an illness or something happens to us is it because God is punishing us. you got to keep this in mind. Think of Job, right? Okay, We all know the inside story regarding Job. And think of how much that man suffered and how he longed to be dead. It would have been better for him to be dead. But see, he didn't suffer because of his sin. He suffered because the devil hated him. And the devil asked to sift him in order to knock his faith off of Christ. That's what the devil was all about. So that's the reason why he suffered. So, But in Jesus' day, the Pharisees would teach, Oh, are you poor? Are you stricken? Do you have an illness? It's because you're a sinner. That was the only possible solution. So, as Jesus is discipling his disciples and teaching them... They come across this man who was blind from birth. And keep this in mind, this poor man has lived a difficult life. Being blind is no easy feat, especially in the days before we have handicapped parking and crosswalks that can tell you when it's okay to cross. Being blind is a difficult road to hoe. So he suffered greatly as a blind man. So Jesus' answer to his disciples is this, neither this man nor his parents sinned. He's not saying they're sinless. He's saying that the reason why this man was born blind is not due to God punishing a sin. So Jesus said, this has happened so that the work of God might be displayed in his life. That's the reason why he suffered. God was doing something. It's tough tough for us to swallow this, but sometimes our suffering is because God is doing something for his own glory. So, Jesus then says this, As long as it is day, we must do the work of him who sent me. Night is coming when no one can work. And while I'm in the world, I am the light of the world. Having said this, he spit on the ground, made some mud with the saliva, put it on the man's eyes. Go, he told him, wash in the pool of Siloam. This word means sent. So the man went and washed and came home seeing. Now keep in mind, mud Made with spittle does not have any medicinal properties to heal people and give them their eyesight back. But this mud did. Jesus, if you would, kind of made a sacrament of sorts. And so he takes, he's, and he spits in the dirt and makes some mud and puts it on the guy's eyes. This guy washes over, goes over to Siloam, and so he's got this mud on his eyes, and while he's, the mud is on his eyes, He clearly can't see anything, but God's miracle-working power is working in him. He gets to Siloam, and he washes, and he sees. Think of your baptism here. You are blind until you are washed, and then God opens your eyes. There's something going on in this theme as well. He still has not seen Jesus. He's heard Jesus' voice, but he hasn't seen him. He doesn't know what Jesus looks like. Keep all of that in mind. Having said this, he spit on the ground, made some mud with the saliva, put it on the man's eyes, go, he told him, wash in the pool of Siloam. So the man went and washed, and he came home seeing. His neighbors and those who had formerly seen him begging asked, isn't this the same man who used to sit and beg? Some claimed that he was, and others said, no, he only looks like him. Maybe he has a twin brother, right? But he himself insisted, I'm the man. Well, then how then were your eyes open, they demanded. He replied, the man they called Jesus. He made some mud and put it on my eyes. And he told me to go to Siloam and and wash. So I went and I washed. And then I could see. Where is this man, they asked him. "I, I don't know, he said. Well, whenever there's a miracle... You've got to get the religious authorities involved. They've got, this is, they've got to conduct an investigation at this point. But I want you to keep this in mind. This is a little bit of the story that you don't understand. They're going to bring in the Pharisees, and you're going to look long and hard in the Old Testament to find where the Pharisees have the authority to do what they're doing. God has not called Pharisees to teach Israel. Israel. The job of the Levites is to pre- is to teach Israel. When you read about the Levites in the Mosaic Covenant, they are the priestly clan. They are to perform the duties of the temple, and they are called by God as the Levites to be the teachers of Israel. But remember this, remember Paul of uh, Saul of Tarsus, he was before he was Paul, what clan was he from? He was from the clan, the tribe of Benjamin. Nowhere in the Old Testament is Benjamin given the authority to be the teachers of Israel. So when we keep this in mind, you have to understand this. The Pharisees are usurpers. These are men who have asserted their own authority. They have no calling from God to teach Israel. And so if you understand this about them, they put themselves forward... And they are teaching their doctrines, which they're not authorized to teach. And they created this idea that the written word of God is not enough. They claim to not only have the written Torah, they claim to have the oral Torah. And this is just as authoritative. And so when you see the clash between Jesus and the Pharisees going on, and this is one of them, keep that in mind. If you understand this, you'll understand what Jesus then says regarding the hireling, because he says his state, statement about being the true shepherd in light of the fact that there are hirelings, people who jump the fence, who shouldn't even be in the, in, the, you know, in the sheep pen. So keep that in mind. So here's what it says. So Jesus performed this miracle. We've got to get the Pharisees involved. So they brought to the Pharisees the man who had been blind. Now the day in which Jesus had made the mud and opened the man's eyes was a Sabbath. Therefore, the Pharisees also asked him how he had received his sight. So the man says, well, he put mud on my eyes. And the man replied, and I washed, and now I see. Some of the Pharisees said, this man is not from God, for he does not keep the Sabbath. Where in the Sabbath does it say you can't spit in the mud on a Sunday? On a, sorry, not a Sunday, Saturday, right? It doesn't say that anywhere. Well... Keep this in mind. In the tradition of the elders created by the Pharisees, there's a whole section in there about what you can and can't do on the Sabbath. And according to the Pharisees, if you live in a home where you have a dirt floor and you have a table and chairs, you on the Sabbath, you cannot sit at that table and then push back from the table. Because if you did that, The legs of the chair would create furrows in the dirt and that would be plowing. I'm not making this up. And of course, then you have the Pharisees with this ultimate conundrum. If you have an apple in your hand and and your arm is extended outside of the window of your home and the sun goes down and it's Friday night and it becomes the Sabbath because the Sabbath begins when the sun goes down, can you bring your arm in to your home? Answer, no, because then you would be delivering groceries. But can you drop the apple? No, you can't drop the apple either because then you'd be planting a tree. No joke. What a sick and twisted religion this is. Really? You're going to sin if you... uh, Never mind. So, clearly, this is what's going on here. Jesus made mud... On the Sabbath. You can't work on the Sabbath. Jesus didn't sin. He literally healed a man. This is the conundrum. So some of the Pharisees said, This man is not from God, for he does not keep the Sabbath. Others said, Well, how can a sinner do such miraculous signs? So they were divided. Finally, they turned again to the blind man. What have you to say about him? It was your eyes he opened. (laughs) Notice the accusation here. What has this man done? "'How dare you be healed?' He says. So the man replied, "'He's a prophet. <laughs> "'Get out of here.'" So the Jews still did not believe that he had been blind. Well, the answer to the solution is that he couldn't... Pot- this is some kind of a ruse, right? So the Jews still did not believe that he had been blind, and he had received a sight until they sent for the man's parents. Now watch this line of questioning. "'Is this your son?' they asked. "'Is this the one you say was born blind? "'How is it that he can now see?' These are not safe questions, <laughs> right? I mean, you would think these people had committed murder or something. You know, had plotted to kill the emperor of Rome, right? <laughs> well, here's where they answered. Well, we know this is our son. Parents answered, and we know he was born blind. Now, now they go all squishy. But how he can see and who opened his eyes, we don't know. Ask him. He's of age. He'll speak for himself. <laughs> Thanks, mom. Thanks, dad. <laughs> Right? <laughs> the text says, so he, they, his parents said this because they were afraid of the Jews. For already the Jews had decided that anyone who acknowledged that Jesus was the Christ, the Messiah, they would be put out of the synagogue. That was why his parents said, he is of age. Ask him now. Think about this. The religious leaders of Israel are saying they're going to put you out of the church. They're going to excommunicate you. If you believe that Jesus is the Messiah, what kind of religious leaders are these? Because who is Jesus? He is the Messiah. So something terrible has happened. These usurpers, this this office of Pharisee, the ones who've become the instructors of Israel, they're not true religious leaders, are they? The reason they're not is because they, they claim to worship the God of the Bible. The God of the Torah, the God who revealed himself on Mount Sinai. And yet Moses said, a prophet like me will arise among you and you must listen to him. And if you don't, you will be held accountable for this. And so now he's come and they don't recognize who he is. How does one get to be so blind? Yet they read their Bible, do they Not. So think about the irony of the situation. Well, the investigation continues. A second time, they summoned the man who had been blind. Give glory to God, they said. We know this man is a sinner. Really? So now watch what happens. And we learn from this that the man who had been born blind was not only healed with his eyesight, but God also gave him faith. And listen to that. And so he has faith in Christ. And now... He's going to suffer for it. He's going to be persecuted. Watch this. So the, the guy replied, all right, whether or not he's a sinner, I don't know. One thing I do know, I was blind, but now I see. So then they asked him, what did he do to you? How did he open your eyes? He answered, I told you already, and you did not want to listen. Why do you want to hear it again? Do you want to become his disciples too? Well, that didn't go over too well. (laughs) So the text says, So they hurled insults at him. You are, you, you are this fellow's disciple. We're disciples of Moses. We know that God spoke to Moses. And as for this fellow, we don't even know where he came from. And now watch the chutzpah here. So the man answered, well, now that's remarkable. You don't know where he comes from, yet he opened my eyes. We know that God does not listen to sinners. He listens to the godly man who does his will. Nobody has ever heard of opening the eyes of a man born blind. If this man were not from God, he could do nothing. Boom. Yeah. Drop the mic, walk off stage. Yes. Okay. What boldness. What a great proclamation. And what again, what has this guy done wrong? He was healed. That's it. Now watch the theology. So to this, the Pharisees replied, you were steeped in sin at birth. How dare you lecture us? And they threw him out. So they really believed that he was steeped in sin from birth. Why? Because he was born blind. But Jesus explained he wasn't born blind because of sin so that the works of God might be displayed in his life. Now, they threw him out. What an encounter. Now, by the way, you can't go through something like this without being a little shaken up. I mean, you know what I'm saying? (laughs) You, You think your church fights can be a little ornery at times. I mean, this is kind of like taken to a different level. So the guy's shaken up clearly. And all he's done is be healed. That's it. But he confesses Christ, and so here's what happens. Jesus seeks him out. Jesus heard that they had thrown him out, and when he found him, he said, Do you believe in the Son of Man? Who is he, sir? the man asked. Tell me so that I might believe in him. And these beautiful words come out. You have now seen him. In fact, he is the one speaking with you. Remember, he hadn't seen Jesus yet. And now he says, you have now seen him. And the emphasis is on the seeing. What a beautiful thing that Jesus has done here. Seeking this man out. And then it says this. So then the man said, Lord, I believe. And he worshipped him. You only worship God and Jesus accepts worship from this man. What a beautiful picture. Jesus seeks out the blind man who had never seen him. And keep this in mind. We have a lot in common with this blind man. A lot. Each of us were truly born blind. And each of us were washed in the waters of our baptism. And God has given us sight now. And like this man, up to this point, we have yet to see the one who has opened our eyes with our physical eyes. But like Job says in his book, I will behold him with my very eyes. So you too will behold Jesus with your very eyes. And he will be just as kind to you as he was to this man. Because He's healed you and He's given you faith, He's washed away all of your sins, He is truly your Lord and your Shepherd. So with the story then continues. Jesus said, It is for judgment that I have come into this world, so that the blind will see, and those who see will become blind. And Jesus isn't here talking about physical sight. He's talking about that spiritual sight. So some of the Pharisees who were with him, they heard him say this, and they asked him, what, are we blind too? What do you think? They're so blind, they'll excommunicate anybody who confesses Christ as the Messiah, and yet that's exactly who he is. So Jesus said, if you were blind, you would not be guilty of sin boy, is that a theologically charged statement. He's going right after their false teaching. But now that you claim that you can see, your guilt remains. I tell you the truth. The man who does not enter the sheep pen by the gate but climbs in by some other way is a thief and a robber. Who's Jesus talking about? The Pharisees. There is no office of Pharisee. These are people who've basically climbed the fence while no one was looking, came right into the sheep pen. They have no authority to be teaching what they're teaching, and what they're teaching is contrary to the Word of God. If they were teaching the truth, they would recognize Jesus for who he is, and like the man who was just healed, they too would worship Jesus. But they don't. So Jesus says they are thieves and robbers. And that's what false teachers are. The man who enters the, gate, the man who enters by the gate, he is the shepherd of his sheep. And now Jesus speaks about himself. And this is the context in which he makes our statement from our gospel. The watchman opens the gate for him, and the sheep listen to his voice. He calls his own sheep by name and leads them out. When he has brought out all of his own, he goes on ahead of them, and his sheep follow him because they know his voice. They will never follow a stranger. In fact, they will run away from him because they do not recognize a stranger's voice. Jesus used this figure of speech, but they did not understand what he was telling them. Notice it says they didn't understand what he was telling them. The Pharisees didn't get it. In other words, Jesus said, My sheep know my voice. Jesus is speaking to them, and all they're hearing is wah 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 wah. They're not his sheep. Therefore, Jesus said again, I tell you the truth, I am the gate for the sheep. All who ever came before me were thieves and robbers, talking about the Pharisees. But the sheep did not listen to them. I am the gate. Whoever enters through me will be saved. I will come in and go out and find pa- He will come in and go out and find pasture. The thief comes only to steal, to kill, and to destroy. Now, oftentimes you hear people quote this passage. The Bible says that the thief comes to kill, steal, and destroy. And people think it's talking about Satan. It's not. It's talking about false teachers. That's the context. Mm -hmm. The thief comes to only steal, to kill, and to destroy. And that's what false teachers are. I have come so that they might have life, have it to the full. I am the good shepherd. And the good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. Now, normally this wouldn't help sheep. Think about this. You know, if a shepherd's out in the field and the wolf comes and the shepherd lays down his life for the sheep, well, no sooner is the wolf done with the shepherd that he's going to start gnawing on the sheep. But in this case, Jesus, by laying down his life for his sheep, that is how he conquers. This is how he rescues us from the mouth of the lion and from being torn apart by the devil by laying down his life, by paying the price for all of our sins. We, like silly, stupid sheep, have wandered away and put ourselves in danger with our sin. We've done that in all the ways in which we fall short. When we don't love God with our whole heart, and we don't love our neighbor as ourselves. Every one of our adulteries, even of mind, every one of our thefts that we've committed, every time we've lied about somebody, We have put ourselves in grave danger. But our shepherd has laid down his life for the sheep. And that's what we are. We are Jesus' little lambs. And so he's done this out of his great love for us. He says, Just as the Father knows me and I know the Father, I lay down my life for the sheep. I have other sheep that are not of the sheep pen. And Jesus there is referring to Gentiles. He said this in a Jewish context. So he's here at this point making it clear that He lays down his life for his sheep, both who are genetically related to Abraham and those who are just rank Gentiles like us. I have other sheep. I must bring them also. They too will listen to my voice. And there shall be one flock, one shepherd. Ah. So the reason my father loves me is that I lay down my life. only to take it up again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down and authority to take it up. This command I received from my father. Now notice that. Jesus says I have the authority to lay it down, I have the authority to pick it up again, and this command I received from my father. That is in total distinction to the Pharisees who have no authority to be doing any of the things that they're doing. God did not send them. They have no authority to be teaching Israel and the, what the doctrines they're teaching are contrary to the written word of God. But Jesus makes it clear, I have the authority to lay my da- life down again, and I have the authority to take it up, and all of this I have received from God. He truly is our shepherd. The Pharisees, they're hirelings. They care nothing for the sheep. False teachers care, care nothing at all for Christ's sheep, but Jesus does. And all of these words, at these words, the Jews were again divided. Many of them said, well, he's demon-possessed, and he's raving mad. Why listen to him? Are these the words of a madman? Not at all. Others said, these are not the sayings of a man possessed by a demon. Can a demon open the eyes of the blind? So do you hear Jesus' voice today? Do you? Hear his voice again where he says, I have bled and died for you. I've laid down my life for the sheep. And this, my friends, changes everything. It changes everything. And let me remind you of the words that we read in our epistle text, 1 John 3, 16. By this we know, love, that he laid down his life for us. And it doesn't end there. And we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers, for each other. Remember Christ's singular command. As I have loved you, love one another. And how has Christ loved us? By laying down his life for us. So if there's somebody needy among us, somebody who's fallen, we care for them, we love them, we pick them up, we forgive their sins. As Christ has loved us, we also ought to love each other. So this good shepherd of ours who has the authority to lay down his life and take it up again has done so, and he's done so for you. And by the authority that was given to him by the Father, he now commands us to love each other in this same way. What a great, merciful, kind shepherd we have. Let us listen to his voice and let us follow him, even as he leads us to the valley of the shadow of death, because on the other side of that, is the promised land and eternal life with him. And when we get there, we will be like the blind man who, even though our eyes were opened, we have not seen him with our eyes. When we get there, we will see him face to face, and he will say to us, well done, good and faithful servant. In the name of Jesus, amen. Amen. And finally, for our good sermons for this week. Pastor Jeremy Rody, Faith Lutheran Church, Capistrano Beach, California, and his sermon entitled, The Good Shepherd. Here we go.
5: In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. And yet, I have wanted to go my own way. Into green pastures he has led me, but I wander into a sin-parched wasteland. Besides still waters, he has led me. But I've sought more exciting and dangerous places to drink. My soul he has restored countless times, and yet my soul still seeks its own way. In the paths of righteousness he has led me. But I've bolted for the tall grass, and thinking myself hidden and free, I have done whatever beastly thing has entered my sinful heart. For His name's sake, He has led me. But I have lived only for my name's sake, that others might admire and praise me. Through the valley of the shadow of death I walk, and though He is with me, I walk as if I don't really need Him. I will fear no evil, But not because I trust in him. I will fear no evil because I trust in me. His rod and his staff, they comfort me. But only when his rod is pointed at my personal enemies and his staff is correcting those other foolish sheep. And yet, no temptation has overtaken me. That is not common to all. All we like sheep. Have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way. And in turning to our own ways, we have forsaken the way of the true shepherd. The truth is, we don't really want a true shepherd. If anything, we want a hireling shepherd. A God who is there if I need him, a God who loves me just the way I am, who will fix only the problems that I think I have. On the other hand, a true shepherd has a voice to be obeyed. He warns of danger that I don't always see or even believe. He is the Lord of the flock, not me. And if he doesn't like what you're doing, you may find the shepherd's crook around your neck or the butt of his staff in your side. And who wants that? We want a hireling shepherd instead, a God whose motivations we can understand, a God who can be bought off, manipulated, made to do what we want. Since he's merely a hireling, he'll be a bit lazy and indifferent. Maybe I can get by with a Sunday a month, and otherwise he'll let me do as I please, always, always smiling down on me from above. When Jesus says that he is the good shepherd, I fear we think of him not as he is, but as we want him to be. We confuse goodness with niceness. I am the nice shepherd. I am never angry or wrathful. I accept all things, approve all things, and judge nothing. I am always winsome and pragmatic. I never yell, I never strike, I pretty much like whatever you happen to like, and I stand ready to help you forgive yourself, if that's what you want, and if not, that's fine too. What matters most is your happiness. I am the nice shepherd, and I know my sheep and my sheep know me, but my sheep aren't really Christian and I'm not really Christ. I am the nice shepherd, leading you through the valley of the shadow of death into the pit of hell. A nice shepherd doesn't like to talk much, well, about things that aren't nice. Like sin as it really is, or death as it really is. When death comes like a wolf with bristled hair and fangs exposed, the nice shepherd is... Nowhere to be found. While you are being devoured, the nice shepherd stands on a hill and celebrates your life. And that's the difference between a nice shepherd and a good shepherd. The good shepherd isn't busy celebrating your life, he's busy laying down his own. The good shepherd isn't fleeing from the wolf. The good shepherd puts himself between you and the wolf, between you and the gaping mouth of the grave. I am the good shepherd, Jesus says. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. The hireling God is not a true shepherd. The hireling God will comfort you and console you and fill you with happy, positive feelings about yourself. He'll give you freedom to do as you please. But when the wolf comes for you, the hireling God flees, leaving you to be devoured. The hireling God may be nice, but in truth, he cares nothing for the sheep. So which would you have? A nice shepherd or one who is truly good? I am the good shepherd, Jesus says. I know my own and my own know me. Just as the Father knows me and I know the Father. And I lay down my life for the sheep. The Lord is your shepherd. For you are the people of his pasture and the sheep of his hand. Not only has he made you and given you everything that you have, he has bought you at the price of his own life and purchased you with the currency of His own blood. Even me. I, who have left His side and chosen my own way. Yes, you. I, who countless times have strayed into sin's wasteland and let the beast in me drink its fill. Yes, you. I, who have walked in the paths of unrighteousness and the paths of self-righteousness led on by the hireling God that i fashion fashioned in my own image? Yes, you. The Lord is your shepherd. He has not come for the well, but for the sick. He does not call for the righteous, but calls sinners to himself. Repent, he says. But not as if that one word or that one act suddenly cures you and you'll cease from all sin. Begin to speak of it only in the past tense. Repent, he says. Meaning our whole lives will be lives of repentance. He constantly drawing us. We constantly going astray. He constantly drawing us back again. You who hunger for what is wholesome and thirst for righteousness greater than your own, you who are filthy with sin and wearied by your own unbelief, the Lord is your shepherd. He makes you lie down in the green pastures of his goodness and leads you beside the still waters of his mercy. He feeds you and gives you drink. He washes you and restores your soul once again and again and again because He is the good shepherd. He prepares a table before you in the presence of your enemies so you can have your enemies over for a feast. Gather around me, my sins. All of you, come you great wolf, sit beside me and see. For it is in the presence of you, my sins, and you, my death, that the Lord has prepared a table for me. He feeds me with the bread of immortality and the cup of His forgiveness. Sin and death, you are always with me, telling me what I am not. Come with me to this table and hear what I am. I am forgiven, thus says the Lord himself. He anoints my head with oil. He fills my cup again and again to overflowing. Me, a lowly, wayward sheep at the master's table where he doesn't at all count me to be the beast that I am, but treats me instead as if I were his honored guest. He stoops down to serve me. He treats me as if I were his dearest friend. The Lord is my shepherd. My sin you don't triumph over him. He has overcome you on the cross. My death, you don't have the victory. He has destroyed you with his own resurrection. No, my sin, my death, my enemies. He has not been very nice to you at all, has he? For he is not the nice shepherd at all. He is the good shepherd. Very, very good Little flock, it is the Good Shepherd who has laid down his life for you once and for all. It is the Good Shepherd who now leads you in a life of repentance and a life of forgiveness. The Good Shepherd leads you and his goodness and mercy follow you all the days of your life. You shall dwell in the house of the Lord forever. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen.